Edwin K. Morris, and you are about to embark on the next Pioneer Knowledge Services Because You Need to Know, a digital resource for you to listen to folks share their experience and knowledge around the field of knowledge management and nonprofit work. Hello everyone, my name is uh, Luis, Luis Suarez. I live in one of the Canary Islands in Gran Canaria and I stay connected to people by using all of these various different social tools, which incidentally also implies that even though I'm remote, I'm not distant. Even though I live in an island, Gran Canaria, off the coast of Morocco, I'm still close enough to my networks and my communities to hang out with. And the other interesting thing is that if I'm stranded in an island, what top three things must I have? I really have them. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You can't use that one if I was stranded on an <laughs> island because you are stranded on an island. Come on. Sorry, you know, okay, let me let me go on. I put that on there, you know, that was the easiest one for me to, to go like, well, hang on. Um, most people don't know this, but my mentor, and I don't think actually that he knows this either. So this is probably the first time that he's going to uh, hear this. My mentor is Dave Snowden. He's the main uh, guilty person for which I ended up working in knowledge management in collaboration sense making. And, and incidentally, we used to be colleagues when we were both working at IBM. And at the time I was working in customer service and one day I heard one of his presentations live in Zurich around knowledge management and the future of knowledge management. And I decided to join that bandwagon. I think that was in 2001. So it's been 21 years now that I have probably been working in the field of knowledge management. For me, it was funny because everything that I was doing before, working in customer service and knowledge bases and everything else was already knowledge management. I just didn't know how to call it. And he brought that bulb saying, oh, now you know what you're working on. So he's my mentor that I still learn from every day. I noticed on social media, there was an issue with your dog. Oh, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah, he was born this year for the second time on, on April 3rd when uh, he was ridden over by a taxi driver because apparently the, the taxi driver did not know what a pavement is. And he just rode over and then he pushed him onto a wall and he looked at that and said, am I still alive or am I in dog heaven? And when he saw me, he said, oh gosh, I'm still on earth. <laughs> I bring that up because in your post, you bring an awareness of that issue that most organizations face when people yeah, leave an organization right. abruptly. Let's talk about that awareness <laughs> because there seems to be some lip service in some organizations that say, oh yeah, we should do something about, you know, Charlie's getting kind of old or Mary's getting a little old there or maybe retiring soon or, or what mm -hmm. have you. They don't do anything. What would you say to that organization? They're too late already. I mean, if you have employees who are already starting to think about semi-retirement or retirement and your question is like, how do we capture or retain some of that knowledge? That's already too late. It's something that you need to start way before that. It's something that you need to start, you know, usually I, I tell organizations that in terms of knowledge transfer, in terms of, of being able to capture some of what people know, which is impossible to capture everything as we all know, but to capture some of it, you need to start as soon as possible. Not when people are 50, 55, 60, 65, because at that point in time, they're already thinking like, I want to be in, a beach, in my beach house. I don't want to think about work. Uh, it's too late for a lot of it. And it, it, anything that seems to be an attempt 
or a grab of trying to do something is usually ill-received. I mean, like you say, their mindset is, I'm moving on. You know, they've already decided that, or there's a mental state that shifts, and the framework's different, and it should have been from the beginning. So whose responsibility is that? Who in an organization should be driving that? No one's and everyone's, you know, because one of the things, I mean, I'm going to explain what I mean with that, right? So I think it is everyone's responsibility to understand that without knowledge, we will not be able to go anywhere and that we need to transition from that. I need to protect and hold my knowledge because that's my competitive advantage. And instead transitioning, I need to share as much as I possibly can within my own constraints, obviously, with the tools that I have available and everything else. So to me, who owns it is essentially everyone or no one, because if you're trying to make someone own it, then everyone else will say, okay, it's not my job. You know, you do it, right? But if you're trying to make it as everyone's job, then everyone chips in. And this is also something that in terms of, you know, knowledge capturing and everything else, um, I'm going to say something that perhaps most people don't like, and that is that we have been very obnoxious about it because we, when we think about knowledge transfer or knowledge extractions, we feel like we're going into people's throats to go like, my God, give me all of your knowledge or you're fired kind of Mm -hmm. thing, right? Mm -hmm. When it should be more of like natural way of saying, you know, in order for me to be able to do my work, I need to be able to share my knowledge with the people who I need to work with. I mean, I remember back in the day when we used to work in, in, you know, this is like maybe the 80s, 90s kind of thing, when we used to work with a single project, single team, one manager, one client, and then do that work. The reality nowadays is that we work in multiple projects, multiple teams, multiple managers, multiple customers, and it's almost impossible for one individual to do the job alone. So that knowledge transfer needs to happen right there, the moment that the person arrives into an organization and say like, hey, how do I get my way around? Where do I go to hang out with my colleagues, to work on my projects, to share what I need to share with whoever I need to share and how do I need to do my job? Well, based on that premise, I mean, that's that's the utopian society we're all shooting for where people <laughs> just share knowledge because it's the right thing to do for the whole of everything. But what's the most important leg of this? People, processes, or technology? Do you people. Think? What, maybe not, okay, so that's the most important. So what's the weakest link? Uh, the weakest, so I will explain what it is. The weakest link is people, and the most important is people. <laughs> but let me explain why. No, 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 let me, yeah, it's because we're complex beings. You it's know, a people. You're playing with people's emotions when you're at the workplace, right? And this is one of the things that gets me crazy or drives me crazy when people tell me that they need to drive adoption of tools or they need to drive people onto doing something with change. I say, I'm sorry, but you cannot drive people. No. You drive cars, but not people. You need to influence and persuade people into doing something and then let it down to them to do something. That's a completely different game. You know, for the pyramid about people, process, and technology, for me, the most important is people. It always has been people. And why is it weakest link? Because those same people decided that they were not the most important critical one. When they put so much emphasis on technology, when they put so much emphasis on processes, business processes, neglecting themselves as the key magic trick. Why do I say that the people are the most important thing? For one simple thing is, no matter how good your processes are, no matter how good your technology is, if you don't have people, 
you don't have nothing. And excuse my, but that is English or whatever. I was going to use an expletive, but I don't, I don't think, you know, yeah, don't think that probably. I can use this, right? Yeah. And that's the most important <laughs> thing, which is one of the things that I find fascinating from the emergence of back in the day of social tools like blogs and wikis initially over th nearly 30 years ago already, right? Because to me, they were the ones who were bringing mm -hmm. people back into the heart of the knowledge sharing process, right? The ability for people to use relatively easy to use tools right. where you define the process, you know, that how you would want to transfer your knowledge, how you would want to share your knowledge is your blog, is the wiki that you work with your team. So I thought like, okay, so now we're going to leave behind everything that we have accumulated about primary paramount importance of tools and technology, and we're going to go back again to people. And that's what I'm, I'm saying that to me is the most important, still is the most important, and yet is the one that is considered the weakest because we haven't made the switch. Yeah, we haven't really approached it well. And that's no. that's kind of where we're hub of today's conversation is around that social connection, the social media, the social learning. Mm -hmm. You know, and when you were saying about you don't drive people, you drive cars. If you came about it in the mentality of instead of hierarchical, responsibility, almost like a teacher-student relationship of a learning environment where you're trying to get people excited about engagement and learning and understanding and comprehension, all those things that come with a, a learning environment. What is the difference, do you think, in organizations that don't get that? Um, is it is it strictly just a capitalistic kind of mindset? No. Because well, I'm at work, I'm working, I'm I'm making widgets, I'm earning dollars or or pounds. I mean, the other day, the other day, someone was commenting about on LinkedIn posts, uh, and it was related in a way, although he wasn't using the name for knowledge management, about some of the pitfalls about as to why digital transformation failed using Chat GPT, right? The coolest thing at the moment, apparently. And it gave like seven really good, solid reasons. And I thought like, hang on, you guys are missing the number one. And then people look at me like, like what do you mean the number one? I say, yeah, the number one. They were number one that at least I have been saying for years, that is the main issue to your question as well, which is management. It's power, it's dynamics, mm -hmm. the dynamic power of, or sorry, the power dynamics, I should say better, as to why we haven't made that click, right? More than anything else, because people still feel that the more knowledge I have, the more power I have. And the little that I share is what will make me dispensable. At the core of how people work, the difference between a manager and an employee is that they usually have got more information to make better decisions. Right. That's the core difference, right? Which means that they strip off the personal agency of the employees to make their own decisions about work items. The emergence of social tools, blogs, wikis, activity streams, and so forth, totally demolish that because all of a sudden we go from knowledge stocks yeah. to knowledge flows. You start seeing employees who internally behind the firewall, they start sharing all of this knowledge of social digital tools and they start connecting with other people through different networks, through different communities. They start understanding who are the experts in whatever subject, how are they connected to them, mm -hmm. what are they really good at, how they showcase what they're working on and everything else. And all of a sudden, they realize that now they have the power to make decisions. So they no longer need managers for making every decision. Yeah. To your question about what's the challenge, is that that managers have not understood yet the new role that they have away from command and control, top down, I decide you do, to how can I help you? Facilitation, right? Facilitator. Exactly. Right. That's the key yeah. word. I mean, when, when everyone talks about 
One of the fully loaded words right now is about community, building community. And we have this lovely word about community management. You don't have you on your side when you say community management. And then people tell me like, what do you mean? What do you say with that? I say, well, because you cannot manage communities. You just cannot manage a group of people who voluntarily decide to get together to learn and connect with one another. You cannot manage that. You can facilitate that those conversations happen. You can steward the conversations in a way that they flourish, whatever the work topics that are interested in, and as a result of that, get work done. So instead of community leaders, we should all become community facilitators for that knowledge transfer to happen in a natural way, the way we are having a conversation right now, as opposed to push it down people's throats, either you share that or you're fired. Does the organization have a responsibility to change its own nomenclature, its own terminology from management, manager, president, vice president, because those all have a stigma or a bias to them? You know, this is one of the things where like people tell me, oh my God, so you don't want managers within organizations. I say, no, I'm not saying that. No, it's not what exactly. I'm right. saying, yeah. I'm saying that managers have a specific purpose and that purpose. is to help employees when they get stuck. But if they don't get stuck, don't intervene, let them do what I would really like for management to understand in this whole process of our knowledge sharing and collaboration is that their role is essentially to work on the most complex problems that no one else can solve within the organization. But everything else, which is probably like 90 something percent, can be done by the employees themselves mm -hmm. if you give them personal agency, if you facilitate a culture where people understand that in order for us to survive, we need to share by default, as opposed to protect and hold by default. And that the only thing that I can do as a manager is say, hey, what can I do for you today? Without expecting anything in return. Because there's, there's always like, well, if, if I do this for you, then you will have to do this for no, 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 no. Mm -hmm. It's you need to understand that your role is to get mm -hmm. the, hire the best people and let them do the work and get out of the way. And if they get stuck is how can I help you get unstuck so you can continue doing your work? And the thing that I know has worked for many people is that they're terrified of letting control go, right? But in reality, and, and I want to mention this because to me this is, is important, is that the fact that I'm saying that management's role needs to be really fine, everyone feels like, you know, let's get rid of managers. I say no, because eventually there will be employees who will need guidance in terms of how to move further, who will get stuck and who will say, hey, I know that you have given me the power to decide, mm -hmm. but I'm not mm -hmm. sure about how to go about this route. That's what we need managers for. That's what the process of inspiring that narrative change, if you want to call it, in terms of how we put labels, silly labels on, on people's necks and everything else, right? And to me, it's, it's about that facilitation. You have got a directive for saying, hey, this is what we need to do. This is our focus. This is our primary mission, goal, purpose, whatever you want to do it. Here's what we have available in terms of tools, processes. And if there's anything that I can help you with, sure. I'm there for you. If not, go ahead and do it. And that to me is also a big question that is very difficult to ask in some audiences because they're terrified of answering, which is, you know, do I trust my employees? Well, trust is definitely the, the big black hole of most organizations. Before we move on to that, I wanted to connect the dots. Uh -huh. So what was your first indication of understanding this dynamic of people working together? <laughs> and I'm going back to when you were a kid. <laughs> Right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, the, you're, you're, uh, um, there was only one person who asked me that question, and that was for an article that 
he wrote for Wired Japan about why I quit email, like I said before, 14 years ago. Um, it's basketball. Fun enough, basketball. When I started playing basketball at 10 years old, I was hanging out with my brother and his mate, so slightly older than me. And I was actually hanging out with the cool kids, you know, the grown-ups playing basketball. And obviously at the beginning, I didn't know how to play basketball, so I had to watch and learn how people were playing basketball. I'm going to date myself here perhaps a little bit. So this is the early 80s. And at the time, I understood very clearly from the very beginning that basketball is a team sport. And that means that no matter how good you are as an individual, if you don't get your team to play with you, you're worthless. You're on the bench or off the team. Right. What I, what I mean with that is that you need to understand what each of the team members is really good at and augment that, right? And, and as a team sport, you realize that the power is in the team, not in the eye. Mm -hmm. There's no eye in team, as they used to say. And that to me was an eye-opener to say, if I wanted to, to get across or, or get away with something that I needed to do or whatever, I needed to find my team. And you need to find a group of people that I will play basketball with and be better at it. And I played, obviously, basketball until I was like 23 and I lived and moved abroad and, and that was it. But that was the experience that taught me about teamwork, about no matter how good you are as an individual, without a group of people supporting you, helping you, and you helping back in equal measure, or perhaps even more, you wouldn't go anywhere, right? So when I started working in the corporate world, in, for instance, at IBM in 1997, I realized that if I wanted to, to survive, I needed to not find myself or find my way up. I needed to find a group mm -hmm. of people who would help me be there. That's when I understood through playing basketball, the importance of networking the importance of learning, the importance of keeping an open mind, as saying, gosh, you look very tiny thing or whatever to play basketball, but yet you're a massive playmaker, mm. right? That kind of thing. Mm. So be open to the unexpected in a way. And also understand that you're bound to fail many times before you succeed. That was also very critical. So that component of play, failure, learn, do better is what I basically brought into when I started my adult life working in the corporate world. I left IBM eight years ago, and then I had my own thing and working now for a small firm called Panagent and everything else. And I understood very clearly that if I wanted to go elsewhere, I needed to go not alone, but with someone else, with my network. And this is something that I have always translated to people that you can never underestimate the ability to network with people. Always be willing to meet new people, not necessarily just the good old mates that you know from all your life. I want to back up to the basketball stories. Yeah. The way you were integrated into the basketball life mm -hmm. was not where somebody came up to you and said, look, you're going to do it like this, and then you're going to do this. You basically just said you observed yeah. and learned and, and adopted, right? You adapted, yeah. you adopted. To me, you know, I was playing with my brother, older, and with his mates, so they were older, so you don't have with the younger ones. That's, you know, the younger ones, they're just there. So you basically had the, the opportunity where I said, well, these guys don't want to play with me, so I just can move on and play something else, football, badminton, whatever. But then I said, like, hang on, this is actually an interesting sport because you realize that it's very dynamic. And, and at the time, I started discovering, you know, the NBA and everything else. And then for me, Magic from the Lakers was the, not just the showtime, is, is the guy who actually plays poetry in movement. Mm. Yeah, I need to learn how to play this. You know, I took that role of, of being the observer 
and starting i'm not going to say like mimicking but certainly learning about certain moves yeah. oh, and sure. then and then obviously when you're given the chance to play or when you play with those of your same age or you play on your own mm-hmm. you're trying to repeat exactly what you saw exactly. and then you become better with each of the iterations and then obviously as you started playing in different matches and everything else then you had the opportunity to learn about what everyone was good at and instigate that Right. Give me an example of an organization that plays basketball well in relation to knowledge, knowledge workers, you know, that sort of thing. Who's a good use case to shine a light on? Anybody? The way I see basketball? No, yet. Uh, yeah. Okay. No. And, and I'll tell you what, to me, is going to be the deciding moment. The moment that it will start for me is when organizations realize that networks and communities are the new operating model, that they become the new operating model. Right now, I see a lot of organizations that are still very much driven by individual productivity and team productivity, which is not bad, but it's not enough. In the complex world that we live in today with the complex problems that we have, it's not enough to just work with your mates or work with just one or two individuals or whatever else. You need to go in a wider scale. For instance, Dave Snowden talks about the importance of having a human sensor network. So thousands or hundreds of individuals that you can query to tell you what things are going on within an organization. Now, this is one of the things when enterprise social networking tools from 2006 till probably 2014, 2015, they were brilliant at doing that because they had the ability within the firewall to have mm-hmm. hundreds of not thousands of voices who were basically telling what they were seeing, what they were working on, yeah. what they were collaborating and everything else. Why don't I have a new an example to tell you right now? It's because the vast majority of those organizations, they killed the ESNs directly. And they moved back again to working in silos, in small teams, yeah. using technologies that while they're good, they promote the default to private as opposed to the default mm-hmm. to open. Don't you think Microsoft's Viva is going to switch all that? Because now no. you've got somebody that you're interacting with on a productivity, how you feel, you know, support systems, all those types of things. Uh, my answer is no. And there's one reason why they're not. And I'm not saying that they are bad. Mm-hmm. They're good applications. You know, all of the Viva Suite is really good applications and they do some interesting things. But there's one caveat there that terrifies me, which is that a number of them are driven and run by algorithms. Mm-hmm that I don't have the power to tinker with and Uh, that they belong to someone else. So an algorithm all of a sudden decides what interests me, what is my work and how I see work. No, that's a big no. I think that we have probably learned a thing or two of what algorithms, obscure, private, opaque, copyrighted algorithms can do to all the media tools out there and the impact that that can have in manipulating a certain way of working. So we know how that works on the internet. Do I want that on the corporate mm-hmm. firewall? No. I don't want an algorithm to tell me who to connect with because they think that they know better than me who I need to connect with. I'm sorry. If you strip me of my personal agency when I work, I will have a problem with you always. And, and by the way, I have said this many, many times and I have been ignored all the time because apparently we seem to believe that algorithms and AI will save humanity from all of the problems. No, remember, the weakest link is people, and it needs to be solved Mm. with people and not replace people, but augment people. If you're going to tell an organization to chuck the idea of management by email, how would you tell them to fix that? Because, you know, I would guess 95% of organizations run Mm. everything via email. I would tell them, 
1970s and 1980s died off already 40 years ago, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, so here's the thing. So here's the thing. No, seriously, right? Um, everyone seems to be very fond of putting in the word, these words in their mouth, which is walking the floor. Mm. So managers need to walk the floor. Some managers who have that luxury in terms of being and literally physically walking the floor and talk to their employees, it's, it's actually wonderful. That's actually what, what I'm asking for. But the reality is that we don't all work now on the floor nowadays. With the pandemic, we have understood that we can now work from anywhere, that we can either transition to remote work or distributed work or even the hybrid workplace, mm-hmm. and that we don't need to be there all the time. So how do you mm-hmm. walk the floor when the floor is no longer physical? but virtual. Here's the thing for management. When was the last time that you used social digital tools within your organization to have open two-way conversations with your employees without intermediaries, without our team, our communications team monitoring, facilitating the tough questions that they don't want you to see and that they don't want you to answer? When was the last time that that happened? That's the management via email. That's what needs to be for me. It's walk the virtual floor and talk to people. And, and I don't necessarily mean that you need to talk to hundreds of thousands of people. No, you don't. Oh, you just yeah. need to be yeah. in the know. And, and you talked earlier on and you mentioned earlier on about awareness and accessibility. Mm-hmm. I will also add their reach. How easy can I reach you as a manager, middle manager, executive, whatever, to have a conversation about something that interests me, that I think is not worthy talking about because mm. there's a problem that I'm saying, a process that I know is broken, tools that are not working, customers, whatever. What is that, you know, walking the floor when the floor is not physical but virtual, right? Surprisingly, and there's research done about this, the moment that management and leaders do that, the involvement and the commitment and engagement from the employee workforce skyrockets because mm. they finally feel that that two-way communication is actually working versus being told what to do. Eventually, in a nutshell, is treat your people as humans, not as assets that you can dispense of, which is one of the main KM toxic narratives that we have been told to be living. Speaking of, what's your definition of knowledge management? <laughs> do, I, do I need to have one? Sure, <laughs> you, you must. <laughs> wow. Um. <laughs> I talk about community management and how you cannot manage communities. So to me, you cannot manage knowledge. How can you manage what you don't know? I mean, I always tell people, I only know what I know when you query me about it. Dave Snowden, again, has got this foundational blog post on the 7KM rendering principles. And one of them is, I only know what I know when you ask me about it. You know, another one of my favorites is that if you're asking me for information and you're in need, it's impossibly, impossibly human for me to deny helping you, which goes against a lot of what happens within organizations when you protect and hold your knowledge. But humans are made to share. We are tribal social animals with an ability, with a natural ability to share. To your question on knowledge management, I will probably say more, what do you mean by knowledge sharing as opposed to management? Because again, I don't think that you can manage knowledge. And knowledge sharing to me is essentially the ability to share openly what you know on a particular subject with a group of people who need or who may need that knowledge over time and then who can apply that knowledge to their own knowledge and make it better as a result. So to me, it's not like 
one act of sharing knowledge replaces the other is one augments the other so one of the key messages for me around knowledge sharing is that it has got an augmenting capability as opposed to a replacing capability an idea shared is twice better as an idea than one that you get into your head and you can see that i'm just basically not telling you a definition for km because i don't have one maybe what i can do for defining km knowledge management knowledge sharing is a practice in which the way you learn and share your knowledge allows you to get work done more effectively with others. I think that's a keeper. That's a keeper. That's probably how I would go about it. And I know that it's probably sacrilege because we don't talk about, well, yeah, but how do you document stuff? How do you store stuff? How do you capture explicit knowledge and all that stuff? And I go like, I'm sorry, but I'm not that. And, and there is a reason why I'm saying that I'm not about that. And that, that to me is that content, we have been told that content is king. It's not. It's not. It's the most disgraceful definition that I've ever heard in my life because what most people don't understand is that the moment that I document something, it's already out of date and obsolete because I forget things, because other people can make it better, because other can come forward and correct me if I got it wrong. And the moment that I just basically put it out there, it's already like, I need to update it. So it's not king. What is king to me is the connections that we make the conversations that we have that foster that creation, that co-creation of knowledge. That's what's key to me. And, and the message from there is, is, am I connected to the right people to create that knowledge and share that knowledge? All comes back to that network. The end state has got to have an action orientation, don't you feel? Because in you just as you defined it, I think of these folks that like to burn up about 30 minutes of the workday talking about stuff that has nothing to do with the mission right so right, right, right. let's take that let's add that layer of basketball right if you had everybody on the team just kind of like ah, doing their own thing or these two are over here talking to the ref and these you know what i mean if they're not working towards the mission of making a goal right then and, and there's no team correct yeah. but and, and who is the key player to make that all work the playmaker so you see, you still have a need for a manager or a leader to coordinate, to herd the cats, if you want me to, you know, if you're going to say that and say, hey, people, I love what you're all doing. I love that you're really good at X, Y, Z. At the end of the day, we have got this mission and we should go towards that direction. And, and what is interesting for me as well is that mm -hmm. we seem to always be very focused on the final destination. I'm actually more interested in the journey than in the final destination. So even though we may have a particular purpose or mission or goal of where I want to be, I'm more interested in that journey because that's to me what allows me to grow and learn about what I do with others and how I need that you know, support, help, facilitation from my playmaker, my manager, to tell me, hey, here's where we're going. Let's see how far we can get close to that. Because then obviously we have got all sorts of constraints in the middle. We have got different hurdles. We have got all of different issues. So you always have to know how to navigate through all of them, just like you move on the court. Okay. You know, there are times when you try to go through and there's a block there. You go like, no, can I go through here? I need to go somewhere else. Is that navigating, mm -hmm. right? But I agree with you. And this is my favorite part. We will still have the need for that playmaker. And what is interesting from this analogy of using basketball is that if you notice the playmaker is never about them. It's about the team. A good playmaker is the one who makes everyone play. Not about me scoring 40, 50 points and then have one or two assists. I would rather have a playmaker that has got triple the amount of assists versus the scoring that they do. Score when you need to. Mm -hmm. When the team is stuck, mm -hmm. that's when you need to show that you're a real star. But for the rest, 
for you is to just know where to pass the ball to get the baskets from the people who you know are really good at what they are. And that to me is the role of the playmaker, the role of the manager. Be that facilitator as opposed to, yeah, I'm going to score all of them and then you all have to cheer me up about how much of a hero I am to the team. Yeah, knowledge management does not need a hero. No. Knowledge management needs a team. Correct. And that's a nice way of putting it. And and actually people will go and say, oh my God, that's sacrilege. Like, (laughs) 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 No, but but in a way, you know, in a way, don't you feel that it's team effort? Oh, absolutely. The act of sharing is a team effort. It's one of the things that I always loved about, you know, when people tell me, oh, we're using wikis. And I go and check out the wikis and I see the name of one single person doing all of the wiki documented stuff. Yeah. I'm like, like, hang on, how does that work? You know, people will tell me like, yeah, but it's just I'm afraid of editing the wiki right. page because I may have it wrong or I may have whatever. Yes. So this person does it for us. I say, but that's yeah. not how they work. Knowledge is a co-creation no. process. That's one perspective. That's exactly. This, you know, the reason why this happens with a lot of organizations is because people have not been told that they have the freedom to have a voice to share their thoughts, that they have the freedom to have a personal agency to go and update something and say, hey, this is wrong. It's all right, but we did it, or it's perfect. Here's the analogy of that. Either you're singing a solo or you're with the choir. Correct. So you need a choir of voices to make the sound. Right, and that's what will make the sound beautiful when it's not just a sound tone over and over again right and, and it's, it's one of the things it's one of the things that is, is so helpful to understand about how we seem to always look for people like yeah you will do it because you're the best at, do, at doing that right and, yeah, and then you exactly. just relinquish you're, you're the knowledge manager oh my Go god yeah and, and then obviously yes. then it goes into the into, it, 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 it evolves into that because then you realize that those knowledge managers they feel validated and vindicated to get away with everything that they do and I go like, ooh, no, that's not where I want you to go. You know, like, like I don't want, because then obviously there's this aura of perhaps even having the feeling that they are better than everyone else based on that power that they have been given. They have a cape. They have a cape yeah, and exactly. everything. Yeah, exactly. And this is one of the things that terrifies me, because when you go into the world of networks and communities, no one is above anyone. And what you do is you need to work really hard through conversations to earn the merit of the attention of others based on what you share. Is how you basically capture people's imaginations about what you write and what you share online through these tools that's what's going to give you that position of privilege where people will listen to you. But it's something that you earn every single conversation and it can be destroyed with one single conversation. You know, it should not be confrontation it should be conversation correct but but it, and, I, and i would suppose that we're not saying here that dissent or debate is not healthy it is mm-hmm. you need to have you need to have that because that's how we basically learn from one another mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. but it's also it's also the situation where it needs to be constructive it needs to be where you add something add something we don't agree is there an opportunity for us to reach some sort of consensus if there is great if not mm-hmm. that's fine yeah. we still keep talking about it Right? And we keep adding further details or further facts or whatever else, right? Just an appreciation of different perspectives. And I think that's where a lot, right. of, and a lot of the, the framework of humans now has become defense. Defend right. what they say right. and not listen to the other people. Right, because, because we, you know, we feel probably hurt in our feelings. You know, like when, like, my God, like, how dare you say that about me? And so, like, well, I'm not saying that about you. I'm just basically sharing my experience on, on that particular field, topic, or whatever else, right? That, to me, is one of the important 
reasons as to why I think two-way communications are so crucial is the ability for you to say something and for me to say something mm. back, right? If I have to, or if I need to, sometimes you will go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, mm -hmm. I'll mark it down, mm -hmm. or I'll note it down or whatever. But it's, it's that opportunity of having conversations. And then obviously all in the context of no longer being able to do it face-to-face -face because we may not be longer collocated as we used to be. And how, from that point of view, uh, mastering the art of writing well mm -hmm. to communicate your ideas is so critical yeah. because you know, we no longer have body language to communicate, to help with the communication. We need to know how to write really well so that our message gets across mm -hmm. and it doesn't get confused mm -hmm. because, again, people will hurt their feelings or whatever. And, and that's not about it. It's that we keep forgetting that we all work for the same organization. So in my best of interest is to help you make me successful because that will make me successful because we all work for mm -hmm. the same organization. You can translate that organization into mm -hmm. a community practice, into a network into whatever the grouping that you hang out. I don't know anyone who hangs out with a group that just basically wants them dead or influenced by a toxic behavior, right? Yeah. And then when they tell me, yeah, well, I, I, I am on all of those groups. I say, okay, so who's the problem, the group or yours? Mm -hmm. Because you can leave any time, right? It's a choice that you have. I mean, it's a, the thing that we're seeing with Twitter now and everyone as an example, oh my God, like, do I have to put out with all of this? You know, because Twitter is, is the public square. I say, no, you don't. No. Twitter is a private company. And you can leave anytime you want when you don't like it. The way I describe it is like being in a party. You show up at a party with your best mates and you're having a great time, a few drinks, lovely conversations and everything else. And then at the end of the party, the bullies show up, drunk, whatever. <laughs> so what do you do? You leave the party. You go to the next one. Yes. This is exactly the yes. same example, <laughs> right? It's, it's, no one is forcing us to stick around in the places right. that we don't enjoy and we don't learn. It's the same thing where... In the space of, of knowledge management, I'm saying, yeah, we, you know, we have to do this thing because no one does it and it's terrible work. Uh, excuse me? We, we, so we work because it's terrible? No, we should be working on something that we find mm -hmm. rewarding and meaningful and purposeful. And if it is not, it's your problem. It's not the organization's problem. You're just basically working for the wrong organization. It's time for you to move on. Funny you should say that. It's time for me to move on. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing everything about your journey, basketball, knowledge sharing, and the globe. Uh, it, it's been a blast having this conversation with you. Let's do it again. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Edwin. And I look forward to the next one. just finished our latest Because You Need to Know, a public service of Pioneer Knowledge Services. Please join us on LinkedIn and find us at pioneer-ks.org.